Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. It is very, very early Sunday morning, uh, just past midnight here on the East Coast. It is still Saturday where Barton Simmons and Tom Fernelli reside. And uh, we've got a full rivalry week, a rivalry weekend to unpack here for you in our uh, Week 14 Instant Reaction. A lot to get to. I mean, look, we we had an epic Iron Bowl, one for the ages. We've got some shuffle, not within the top four per se, but definitely within the top 10 to 15. College football playoff pictures a little bit changed. Things are a little bit easier or cleaner, maybe, as we head into championship week, or maybe it's just all a little bit more murky. So, gentlemen, uh, Barton, Tom, how are we feeling? A little disappointed with the day, honestly, and the weekend in general. Because, I mean, obviously, the Iron Bowl was great, and there were good games, but there was just such a lack of drama with the top four teams today. It's like you, you I was just hoping somebody would be pushed, and even if they all won, that there would be some kind of drama for them. And it was just, I mean, what, the smallest margin in any of the four games among the top four was 29 points? Well, yeah, I can tell you, Tom, all of the margins were above the spreads. Because PPFP <laughs> went into the lab for this week to see if the playoff pressure fade principle was going to be something that we're going to put in, uh, put into practice, and no, it crashed and burned. Um, we got to try it again next week. There's going to be a lot of playoff pressure on the next week. Maybe you just need to tr- uh, switch it up to the the quad P, the playoff pressure play principle. You should play playoff pressure teams because they're going to run up the skip score. But that was a remarkable effort by the P- <laughs> PP- PPFP squad. Um, but the yeah, I, I I I don't know what to think. Like, and part of me wants to just sort of be very um, sure about us having the right playoff team in and, and just sort of wanting to, to have a definitive champion. And, and like, there's some appeal to that, to, to a clean ending to everything. But obviously there's some appeal to the chaos of, of just forcing the committee to, to make a decision that there is no true answer to. And the committee absolutely got a break this weekend with Alabama losing. Cause now it doesn't really matter what happens in the big 12 and the PAC 12. Um, if it comes down to Utah or Baylor, Oklahoma, then it's, I mean, it's sort of a coin flip. Like, yeah, someone's going to be upset, but is it really like that big of a deal? But if Bama got in without winning his division, over a couple one-loss conference champs, then that could have flipped the whole thing on its head. So, uh, you know, good good weekend for Rob Mullins. Jeez. Except for the fact that uh, Oregon's offense uh, didn't didn't look fantastic, and our beeves were feisty. We we're excited about that. But let's uh, let's let's get things rolling right there in the the Iron Bowl. And so I guess for. For you and Barton, we were on uh, CBS Sports HQ after the Iron Bowl was over, sort of sharing some of our uh, initial thoughts. You can go see it on CBSSports.com, CBS Sports HQ, on, on your mobile devices as well. So you've got this 
Alabama team. And as I, I continued to digest it, we had to give some instant reactions. I kind of felt like I was leaning heavy into the playoff stuff. But as I as I sat back with the loss and I started to look at it, like Alabama Alabama wins this game in a lot of different universes, in a lot of alternate dimensions. Things go their way. It took all of these extraordinary um you know, moments, whether it was the the one second that you've got at the end of the second quarter, whether it was the fact that it was a doink on the game-tying field goal from 30 yards out. I mean, the 101st missed field goal for Alabama in the Nick Saban era. Nick Sa- In the 13 years that Nick Saban has been there, Alabama has missed 101 field goals. That is more than any other program in FBS. The second place is at like 93. Like the amazing, Al- yeah, the Alabama missed field goals thing is real and it is unbelievable. But you know, all of these things happen, and yet, like Barton, we were really close to having that weird, not weird, but having that tough committee spot of dealing with an eleven and one Alabama because Alabama was very close to winning this game. Yeah, um, you know, I can't help but like the one of the things that's just so striking to me. So, from a recruiting standpoint. The Alabama 2017 recruiting class is the second highest rated recruiting class of all time, uh, or modern, you know, since 24-7 sports is, has been tracking it. Um, and that class is, it's it's not a bust. Like, it is, th- that class was a hit. You, you look at Najee Harris, Alex Leatherwood, Dylan Moses, Jerry Judy, Tua Tungavailoa, Jedrick Willis, Xavier McKinney, Devontae Smith, Henry Ruggs. I'm just saying these names. Unreal, the talent that it brought in in that class. All those guys. I just named nine guys. Is any of those guys going to get past the third round? No. I don't think. I don't think so. And that class, in its junior season, is about to have two losses in the regular season, which is crazy. And I guess when, and and. I think when I, as I th- think through this, of like, you know, a lot of the most of the names I just just listed off. I, I listed a couple offensive tackles, but otherwise, there's a lot of skill guys there. And Auburn's 2017 class had Big Cat Bryant and Kenny Britt and T. Moultrie, and the 2016 class had, um, you know, Nick Coe and Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson. And so I guess line of scrimmage beat the skill group. Um, but I just that, – that's just – you know, I want to give Auburn all the credit in the world for figuring out a way to win, and that was a great call by you, Chip, picking them – at least picking the lock. But – because that, that is just how – that was just how it was going to go down. Like in retrospect, of course this game was going to be something stupid and crazy like that <laughs> uh, because that's just how it happens. Yeah. And, and Auburn – and, and Auburn in a classic Auburn Jordan Hare game figures it out. It's a rivalry game, man. Yeah. yeah. It was the Iron <laughs> Bowl. It's one of those things where it's not going to make sense all the time, but it's definitely going to happen. I mean, honestly, if I told you guys before the game that Mac Jones was going to throw six touchdowns, you figured Alabama wins by 30, right? <laughs> <laughs> that And that's like, and one of the things, one of the pe- things people were saying after the game was, you know, good, you know, about Bama's offense did its job. Nah. I mean, Mac, the, the Tua departure was real, not in the sense like Mac Jones for, 
I don't know how many attempts he had in this game. 39. 39 attempts. All right, 37 of those attempts were good enough to win attempts. But the two that weren't, are, I mean, those just those are not two throws that a healthy Tua makes. Those aren't, you know. So those two pick sixes are erase a lot of the goodwill he he accumulated in the other thirty-seven throws. And I, I and I'm I mean, the kid's tough, and he had a good game. And so I don't mean this to knock the Mac Jones effort, but the, those two throws are pretty consequential throws. Tom, are you going to find yourself uh, hung up on the way, the sequence at the end? Because there's the praising Gus Malzahn side of this where you're like, wow, look at Gus. He's such a, a I'm obviously, unfortunately showing my cards at how I feel on this. But uh, <laughs> like like you praise Gus for, for lining up your punter on the outside and, and for making... Uh, you know, making Alabama freak out about whether or not they're going to put Jalen Waddle on the field or not, whether or not, you know, what to do. And it leads to the illegal substitution call. Like I, you can praise Gus for the trickeration. And remember, this is the same podcast where we also called it the putt-putt offense for all of its gimmicks. But there is also the, you know, Alabama side of this, which is, uh, frustration at that, that being the way that it ended, you know, them not necessarily being organized and together, do you find yourself like looking at some of those last organizational, some of the miscues, some of the penalties as being something that you're going to hang on to in your analysis of this game? Well, I mean, I think I think what Auburn and Gus did at the end was smart. I think that that's one of those things. You know, I, we, I talked on HQ all week when I was, but mostly about the Ohio State Michigan game. How these are the kind of games where you spend all season preparing. And you practice things for these games, even though the game might be two months away. And that's clearly something Auburn's been working on and holding for that specific situation in the Iron Bowl to get that to happen and to win the game. And they busted it out, and it worked. But that was, to me, it was more a reflection of Alabama in the entirety of the game because I just felt like Alabama was kind of undisciplined for the most part all day. And at, at the end, that was just kind of the cherry on top of the Sunday. They had 13 penalties for 96 yards. Yeah. It wasn't a crisp Alabama game. There were the two pick sixes. There were all the penalties. Alabama did a lot to lose the game. Auburn did enough to win the game. And I just look when you look at the box score, like I said, this is just a it's a rivalry game, man. Alabama had 515 yards of offense. Auburn had 354. And Auburn scored 48 points. <laughs> Auburn hell. Auburn out of all its possessions had three drives that went at least 50 yards, and one of them went only 50. And still managed to score 48 points, thanks in large part to those two pick sixes on defense and just really good field position at other times getting into field goal range. It's just this Alabama team was very good, and there was so much talent on the team. Barton went over it. Just the, the list of names, I'm sitting there like laughing to myself at how ridiculous that is. And that's all the same freaking class. But yeah. it's, yeah, this, is, this has been Alabama this year. Just where you know it's really, really good, but it does. There's always like it's like a 99% team. There's always that last percent where I feel like they haven't been there quite what we're used to seeing from them. And most of the time it was on defense. And a lot of that was because they were banged up on the defensive side of the ball. They had a lot of youth, but that you still felt at times where, okay, well, 
they're young, but they're now experienced. At this point in the year, they shouldn't be making those same kind of mistakes, but you still see them making the same kind of mistakes at times, and you see them being a little undisciplined. And it's, again, I just, like I said, I feel like it's a 99% Alabama team where there's just something missing. And I think that, that what was missing was what cost them in the end today. This is a really interesting crossroads for Alabama. Yeah. Because th- this, as they head into the pl- the bowl season, you know, they're going to, I don't know what bowl they're going to, what, what bowl are they projected so, to. So, like the- I don't know where they're projected to, but the thing that we want, or not that we want, but if one of the SEC spots for a non-college football playoff bowl in the New Year's Six is the Sugar Bowl. And the Sugar Bowl is dialed in to play Big 12, which means we could get Jalen Hurts in Oklahoma against uh, Alabama in the Sugar Bowl, just not in the college football playoff. And that would also be a rematch. Remember when the Alabama team didn't care about it and then Trevor Knight in Oklahoma lit him up in the bowl game that wasn't for the championship? Could be having those old... old uh, old Trevor Knight vibes as Jalen Hurts gets to take on the Crimson Tide defense. But yeah, we're looking at like Orange Bowl or Sugar Bowl probably for Alabama. So Orange or Sugar where... uh, They they play UVA or uh, Baylor, Oklahoma. (laughs) Yeah, where where 40% of Alabama's starters will be resting up for the NFL draft or whatever. Right. You know, like it'll it'll be very much an an unmotivated team no matter what Nick Saban tricks he tries to pull. And then you get all these guys that are leaving. You have – now, granted, you played a lot of these true freshmen in the front seven, but this this team returns, and suddenly Alabama, the strength of the team, is the skill positions on offense. Um, and so Tua's gone, obviously. you got a true freshman coming in and Bryce Young, who I think is phenomenal, but he's still a true freshman. And, like, is sudden – I mean – this this is not I, this is I'm not implying I think this is the end of the dynasty, but I am impl- But what I am saying is that n- next year could be the most vulnerable Alabama team that we've seen in a while um, to start the season. Because what what then what is their identity like? They're they're I mean it's they're not a Tua led offense. Maybe they can find that guy. They have lost this sort of edge defensively that they had is Brian Robinson or whoever steps in at running back behind. Like, I just don't really, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of who this team becomes next year. So I think it's going to be really interesting how it is framed and, and the evolution of Alabama over the next six to seven months. Um, because this is a, this is, I think the, maybe the toughest little stretch for Nick Saban in terms of just uh, existentially kind of what is Alabama. What about for Auburn? Big picture. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think anything's uh, changed. I think I think Gus Malzahn just beat Alabama in an epic iron bowl. And the second that he loses like two games that he shouldn't, he's back on the hot seat. Yeah, (laughs) and we do the dance one more time. But okay, so and then next year they'll be coming in like so next, and then they lose all these defensive linemen, right? And so next year, year two of Bo Nix, um, you know they've they've got some pieces on offense. So can the offense then sort of 
turn the corner and do what it couldn't do this year. Um, you know, it's but but you're right. Like it's it's a it's less interesting with Auburn because it's just going to be more of the same old kind of Auburn blueprint. Right. And I I think that there is. You know, the the Bo Nix angle of this will be written about a lot and will be talked about a lot. And, you know, can can he take over now? But this win, again, and like I, I, I spat about it a lot, but it, I felt a little bit redeemed when in the post game, you know, you get to hear Derek Brown talk about how important it was for like him and all those dudes to win on senior day in front of, you know, 84,400 and all of their best friends and this, that, or the other. Like there was... There was a couple some, women stuck in the hedges. Like there was there was some uh some deep down motivational edge that Auburn held in this game. And uh not to mention just the raw talent of Derek Brown, a guy who's like, gonna be a first round pick. Marlon Davidson, who I think is leading the SEC in tackles for loss. Uh, you know, Nick Coe, as we mentioned before, Big Cat Bryant. I mean, those dudes are just sick. They're they are not gonna be back next year. And Auburn's going to be eight and four, and then everyone's going to be angry at Gus Malzahn again. And so, working theory, I wonder if the way that Gus Malzahn just lives that life, always on the edge and just figuring out a way and battling back, I wonder if that is the identity of the Gus Malzahn Auburn program. And that mentality kind of helps. Like Gus Malzahn said after the game, you know, we told our guys all week if we can get this thing to the fourth quarter, we're going to win. And that's not a bad approach. That's not a misleading approach, especially with everything we know about this Auburn team in, in terms of being battle-tested and the way that Alabama really comparatively had not been as battle-tested. That That's just kind of the Gus Malzahn thing, living on the hot seat, get this thing to the fourth quarter. It's never going to be pretty, but we're going to figure out a way to do it. We might need two pick sixes to win a game by a very small amount, but that's just going to be the way it's going to get done. And I think that infiltrates the entire program. Is that yeah, a Gus Malzahn loves that. Like he's, he is fully embraced this at this point. Yes. And I think we're, we're like, we're, we're way beyond Gus, Gus Malzahn actually feeling the heat of his seat. Like he is, this is just a way of life for him. And I, I feel like, at this point in his career at Auburn, uh, it doesn't rattle him, and he probably kind of thrives on it a little bit. So let's uh, let's turn our attention to the Ohio State Buckeyes. They are fifty-six to twenty-seven winners against the Michigan Wolverines. This was for Ryan Day, obviously his first win in the game, and for Jim Harbaugh. I believe he is now 0-5. And in these games, I mean, well, first of all, oh, crap, I don't have my the soundboard hooked up right now. Maybe we'll pull it up in a second. Uh, shout out. I mean, what, the the over here, right, Tom? Yep. Cha-ching, 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 cash register. We had that thing done easy. Uh, the game had this, like, really fun feel to it, and then you just – you kind of saw the the high performance vehicle just take off, and Michigan was uh, overwhelmed. Michigan was not able to keep pace. Uh, we saw Ohio State's defense kind of develop a little bit of an edge. Tom, you were live blogging this game, and you had to do a lot of the write up. What were some of the things that stood out to you as we look at either the Ohio State or Michigan side of this fifty six to twenty seven decision? 
you know, Michigan was playing really well, and I thought it had a legitimate chance to, if not, you know, win the game, at least make it a much more spirited game than we'd seen in recent, you know, years until like that. There was a stretch in the second quarter where they made three huge mistakes. Shea Patterson botched a snap in the red zone. Ohio State recovered it. It was 21 to 13 at that point. And it was about to be, you know, 21 to 20 or 21 21, maybe if they went for two. And then, you know, Michigan's defense gives up a couple first downs, but then gets the stop at midfield, puts puts Ohio State in a fourth and four situation where they've got a punt. And then Michigan jumps off sides on the punt, gives Ohio State a first down. Two plays later, bang, touchdown Ohio State. Now it's 28 13. Game is in a lot of trouble. And then just before halftime, Patterson again. Shea Patterson played really well for the most part, especially in the first half. Drives him down the field, hits Donovan Peoples Jones in the back of the end zone for what should be a touchdown to make it 23 to 20. Peoples Jones, the ball gets knocked out of his hands, but he should have caught it. it. I mean, you know, the defense made a good play getting the ball out of his hands as he went to the ground, but he should have caught that ball, and that should have been a touchdown. And really, you look at that. So we go from like what would have been a 21-20 game to now it's 28-13. You go into halftime, it's 28-16. They kick the field goal. And then Ohio State comes out in the start of the third quarter, scores right away. So now the game's over. <laughs> it's 35-16. And you know there's no way in the world that Michigan's going to come back and win. And it's just – this was a great game, I think, for J.K. Dobbins, who I've – I know we spend a ton of time talking about Justin Fields and for obvious reasons, but I've, I felt like Dobbins is a, such a very important player for the Ohio State offense. And that showed to because as we saw, when Fields got hurt, he said after the game that he suffered an MCL sprain last week on the last play of the game against Penn State. He aggravated the injury, and he didn't really run the ball a lot. This is a guy who, for the most part, has been averaging 10 carries per game on the season, only had six carries. So it was clear why, after you found that out from Fields, what the game plan was. And Dobbins really played well. He rushed you know, for over 200 yards for the first time in the season. So I think that if you're Ohio State, there's not a lot to learn other than the Buckeyes are the number one team in the nation for a reason. They are a juggernaut, and this is just what they do to teams. And for me, on the Michigan side, it's funny to me because, you know, we came into this season, there was so much focus on Josh Gaddis and Michigan's offense, you know, finally modernizing. And it's going to be something that can help them compete with Ohio State. And, you know, it got off to a slow start, but towards the end of the year, it got going and it was playing really well. But for the second straight year, it's the Michigan defense, man. In the last two years, Michigan's now allowed 118 points and 1,144 yards in two games against Ohio State. With one of the best defensive coordinators in the country and otherwise elite defensive talent that would start at most anywhere. Yeah. So it's they've got to do something because obviously Ryan Day's got the formula. Your defense is great 11 games of the year. Ryan Day knows exactly how to tear it apart. In Michigan, I don't think they have a counter to it, and I think that's something that – they need to consider going forward. They've they've got to have a counterpunch to Ohio State's offense. They can't just keep doing the things they're doing all year long, thinking that if we stick to what we do, we can beat them. Because it's it's proven pretty clear that no, <laughs> you know, playing man, you cannot keep up with Ohio State. And we saw more zone from them today, but I don't think it was enough. And I think that you know, it it clearly it wasn't enough. They gave up fifty six points and like five hundred some odd yards. So. I think I think there's some question going into next year of what Michigan's going to be able to do defensively. I think they need to get a couple guys. I think what they would really help is, you know, because they they 
neutralized Chase Young to a certain extent in this game. Chase Young made some plays late in the game once it was kind of out of out of hand, and you know the Ohio State could just pin its ears back and get after the quarterback. For the most part, when the game was still up for grabs, Young was neutralized, and I think that's what Michigan needs. I think they need a better pass rush because it just really wasn't there, and that's the one thing I think that they severely lack. Yeah, um, the, what we saw, I think, was the difference between a very good football team and the best team in the country, uh, or best team in the country status, quality. Um, and and I think when you combine that, like this was also a rivalry game, and yet Ohio State didn't allow itself to get sucked into like rivalry ball. Um, and I, I'll, I'll reiterate it. And I mean, a, a couple of maybe post-game drunk Ohio State fans like took offense to this, but it's it's not meant to dismiss what Ohio State has accomplished in this. But I think the way Ohio State approaches this rivalry with this all-consuming obsession year-round is different than the Harbaugh mode, where Harbaugh is just oh, I think he you know he doesn't try to downplay it as just another game, but you know Harbaugh is is a little more coach speak. Um, Harbaugh is a little more, uh, you know, this is, this is a big game. We're going to take it seriously, but you know, this is not like all consuming at Michigan in the same way it is at Ohio state feels like. And I I really think that that contributes to the domination of the series. I think that contributes like you had to, to do that. You kind of have to put yourself out there a little bit. You kind of have to, like, if you're going to say that this is the most important thing, then when you lose, then you're you're basically admitting and confessing like what a big deal that is. Whereas if you're trying to like downplay it, then hey, maybe you can sidestep a loss and 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 excuse a loss more easily. Uh, whoever's the head coach at Ohio State can't excuse a loss to, to Michigan because of the way they're propping this game up. But I think that that creates an environment to where these players are just so dialed in for this game, and it's. I'm I'm just so impressed with the way Michigan or with the way Ohio State has has dominated this series, and I think I really believe that that's that's a a, a primary contributor to it. Also, I think that if this game did anything else for me, and I, I don't want to get too much into this conversation because God knows we'll spend enough time talking about it over the next couple of weeks. I think this locked up a playoff spot for Ohio State. Unless they're yeah, absolutely yeah. blown out by Wisconsin. I which, think which LOL, right? Yeah. O- Ohio State and LSU are both in. Yes. Agree. 100%. Um, all right. So before uh, – actually, real quick. Coming up on the other side, what Wisconsin did against Minnesota and more of our Rivalry Week thoughts next Majors down and one to go in 2020. Bryson DeChambeau overpowered his peers at the U.S. Open. Can he carry that into November for a fall edition of the Masters? We're chatting about that and more on the First Cut Golf Podcast, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. 
We're in your feed week in and week out with tournament previews, picks, interviews, news, and analysis. Join Mark Himmelman, Kyle Porter, Greg Ducharme, and myself, Rick Gaiman, as we give you daily fantasy plays, winning bets, and the hottest takes about Bryson, Phil, and Tiger. So what are you waiting for? Come join our group and let's talk golf. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or anywhere else podcasts are found. There's nothing on earth quite like this. Oh, what a goal! The UEFA Champions League is back at its new home on CBS All Access. Stream every match of the world's most prestigious tournament live. That's incredible! The UEFA Champions League group stage kicks off Tuesday on CBS All Access. There's nothing like it. I guess that was like a kind of a tease, but not a great one. This is a podcast. I guess they can deal with it. Uh, <laughs> Wisconsin like came out and was the team that, uh, in as we see so often in a sport like college football where you've got to build your program up and you've got to do it with class after class, with experience after experience, there was uh, Minnesota jumps out really early, scores fast the home crowd is going nuts we've got a wintry mix and wisconsin's like okay minnesota but we've been here we've done this we've played in games like this i even though jack Cohn, the individual isn't necessarily the player that we've seen there you know quintez cephas is somebody that we've seen uh in this spot uh a lot of other obviously the wisconsin defense is filled with players that we've seen in this spot I, I guess like, uh, Barton, did you get many eyes on this game? Were you dial three thirty was tough. Yeah, it was a lot of action. A lot of action. We had the Civil War going on. We had this. We had obviously the Iron Bowl that we spent a lot of time talking about already. But I, what I saw in my initial takeaways from Wisconsin taking down Minnesota, punching its ticket to the Big Ten championship game against Ohio State, is that Wisconsin's been here and done that. And sort of in the growth and the progression of the Minnesota football program, there was just sort of a moment in this game where the the stage might have been a difference maker as Wisconsin's just a little bit better at this. Because it wasn't the wind, it wasn't the weather. I mean, Jack Cohn was making huge throws. Minnesota dared Jack Cohn to beat him. And I thought that Jack Cohn answered that, uh, answered that call in a big way. I yeah, think the weather definitely ahead. played a role. Yeah, I think you had a you had a good. Um, I mean, obviously, anytime we're in a lock fight, you you typically have the better read. But you had the right read on this and how the weather would would play into it. Because um, that's, I mean, the the downfield passing game is pretty critical. To, I think to Minnesota, uh, their potency on offense, and that was, uh, you know, what that made it a little tough in that wintry mix. Yeah, I mean, Rashad Bateman had a lot of, you know, he had six catches for 147 yards, but Tyler Johnson was pretty much put into, like, possession receiver status. And Tanner Morgan, who has been one of the more accurate passers in the country, not just, you know, pushing the ball down the field, but doing it with accuracy, barely completed 50% of his passes. And he a lot of that, 96 of those yards, he finished with 296. 96 of them came in the fourth quarter when Minnesota was already up, like, 21 
in the final minutes and they put together that last touchdown drive to, or they were up 28 and Minnesota put together a touchdown drive to make it 38 to 17. I think Jack Cohen, you mentioned he balled out, man. He, they didn't ask him to throw a lot, but he made some really nice throws. He was 15 to 22 for 280 yards. Quintus Cephas was on the other side. And the other thing I mentioned leading up to this game was just not just the wind and how it would impact Minnesota's deep game, but the pass rush of Wisconsin, because, you know, you need some time to set that stuff up. You can't just, you know, take three-step drops and throw it 40 yards in the air and hope your receiver gets there. And Wisconsin had five sacks. It was in Morgan's face pretty much throughout the day. They had the five sacks. They forced him into the interception. They they forced him into a strip sack on him, forced a turnover. It was just not a great matchup for Minnesota. It was not the best weather for Minnesota. And I still think Minnesota is a very good 10 and 2 team that on a sunny day when it was 65 might have won this game or at least would have kept it closer. So I, I do think the weather played a role in this one. And I think Wisconsin was just better equipped to play in it. And on today, I think Jack Cohn played better than Tanner Morgan and dealt with it better. And I think Wisconsin's offensive line dealt with the, the pressure better than Minnesota's did. So PJ Fleck had a good, um, you know, we talk about, and and I thought you might have played Harbaugh's uh, sound clip from soundbite from his press conference, which was sort of a surly, salty, surly, yeah, yeah, it's a good word for it. Um, and PJ Fleck, I mean, this is what he does. Like this is this is like his strength is messaging and marketing and. Um, you know, just sort of being the voice of a program and, and, and all that. And so, but he had a great press conference clip of just sort of, look, uh, this was a tough day. Didn't go how we wanted. Uh, but you know, we've, what we've done here in this season in Minnesota is, is, is important. And we are like, I want to assure everyone we are not going back to the old Minnesota. We are, we, we are moving forward. We are not going back. Um, I take responsibility for this loss. We're going to get better, but it was a very, uh, I don't know. It was, it was a, if I'm a Minnesota fan and I see that speech, I am very encouraged and fired up about the future. And I know there are different scenarios, but if I'm a Michigan fan and I see Harbaugh's press conference, I'm like, man, what the hell? What, like what, what else? What, what else is there? Um, is, you know, you got anything else up your sleeve, man? Like you got, you have, you, you have another stick you can play. Uh, but I think the, the PJ Fleck experiment, I think even despite this loss continues to be a pretty positive one. 12 out of 14 finished second tied for first in the West. We don't get to go to the Rose Bowl, maybe. We don't get to go to, you know, uh, the national championship. We, so, but we get to do a lot of other things. So we've had first, we've had nevers, we've restored people's beliefs of what we can do. Let's not go back. Let, let's not start thinking, well, that's, that's typical. That, that, that has to be out of our system. And there's gonna be cynics, there's gonna be doubters, there's gonna be critics, but the true fans, we, what we want them to do is get that completely out of their mind because we are not going back to that. You don't have to worry about that with me, our staff, our recruiting, our culture, our support, our administration, our president, Mark Coyle. You don't have to worry about that anymore. So let it go. Frozen 2 came out. I don't know what the new words are, the new songs, but let it go. It's got to be in there somehow. Let it go. 
because we can. We didn't tonight, but we can. And we show the power of our state. And we appreciate everybody's support. Our band, our alumni, our fans. We heard you the entire time. And I apologize to our fans for not being able to get it done because it falls on my shoulders. A hundred percent of it. Nobody else. Not staff, not players, me. I did not get it done for our fans. And uh, we'll make sure that happens. I tell you what. Outside of uh, outside of actually accepting blame, he sounded like a politician. Fleck twenty twenty. Yeah, he is. He is so James Franklin. Like those two. <laughs> yes. I mean, that, it's it's like they're the same person. Yeah. That's uh, that's a very good point. Thank you for calling that out. I I'm, I don't have the the Harbaugh audio, but I'm glad we got to pull that out. And you know, he just he he went frozen. Right off the bat, I can tell what the the Fleck household's been tripping on recently. Right. Has is Scout gonna go see Frozen too? Oh, done did it, bro. Check that <laughs> off the list. What? Uh, when did y'all see it? Uh, d- day day two. Day two is out. A little hit a little Friday matinee. And right my after first, my, that my, my first off. legitimately my first time in a movie theater in probably. Six years, and right uh, right at, off at the least. tonsils too. So of course you're going to get it right off the tonsils, no doubt. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, all right, so we've got Utah's dominant win against Colorado, Oklahoma not dominant against Oklahoma State, but certainly they got the leverage in that contest and were able to hold it. Georgia, a lot of losses amongst the 52 to seven win. Uh, where do y'all want to go? <sighs> I don't care. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's that's the way I feel about those three games. Well, yeah, frankly, I mean, well, that that's also the attitude that Penn State brought against Rutgers. So I understand. Oh, <laughs> they they beat them by multiple scores. Okay. <laughs> I think. Uh, go ahead. Well, I I think the Georgia situation is at least at least worth spotlighting. Not that you know I don't. If DeAndre Swift is significantly injured, then we've, That's a problem. we've got a massive problem. Like George Pickens not playing is not great, but George Pickens not playing in the absence of Lawrence, Lawrence Cager already being out is really not great. You know, Jake Fromm, I guess he was, what, 14 for 25? Does that sound right? I pulled that oh, out. Oh, no, thing. no, no, Chip. No, no, no. You see, even on a day where Jake Fromm throws for 250 yards and four touchdowns, he still completes 48.2% of his passes. He was 14 I, for 29. 14 for 29. Yeah, I, I saw a couple good passes to Tyler Simmons. Obviously, we know Demetrius Robertson, unless he's on a milk carton, is certainly still out there. Georgia is not ineffective entirely. Brian Harrion can run this ball. If DeAndre Swift is missing time, it's a very significant problem. But this Georgia team is just so... I mentioned this before, and I thought I had it tied because we get a lot of flack for being Georgia haters on this podcast. Have you guys picked this up? Yeah. Yes. I will I don't make, hate Georgia. I will, I, will maintain that, I will maintain that the 2019 Georgia Bulldogs from my seat are hard to like compared to the other national championship contenders. And I, I just think, yeah, see, I think what it is is Georgia fans think of themselves in the same conversation as the top three. Like they don't think that we should, should tear it out. 
And we've never talked about Georgia as the same conversation as Ohio State, Clemson, LSU. Correct. And so it's it is off putting to them that they don't get put in that in that tier. All that being and said, I'm still willing to entertain the idea that Georgia wins the SEC championship game in a spot play, kind of like Auburn beating Alabama in the Iron Bowl in Jordan Hare Stadium this Saturday. But I do maintain that this Georgia team is hard to like because it is very, very, very good at one thing. And that one thing is very important to winning football games. But when we are comparing that to teams that are either very, very well-rounded like Ohio State or Clemson or overwhelmingly and historically elite like LSU's offense with Joe Burrow, then yes, it's a little bit harder to like. Boring. Can we just say that? <laughs> it's not, not, not good. It's very good. It's just boring to watch because it's, you know, it's, I don't even know how, what's the best way to, it's, it's, well, hell, the best way to put it is the way we've put it all year long. It's a boa constrictor. I mean, yeah. all, their defense is is phenomenal. Yes. Um, but I'm sitting here looking at this the Georgia schedule, and and this isn't. I don't mean this to uh, diminish the defense. What I mean this is to say, uh, when I think when I when I spin it forward to like what this team can do against LSU without a super dynamic offense. Like, can the defense hold up? There's really, like, who is the defense that you can really sort of prop up as saying, all right, this is the crew that this this Georgia's d- defense shut down? Who's the offense, rather? Sorry. I guess, like, Florida would be your, your, your best bet? Yes. Held Florida to 17, held Notre Dame to 17. Like, those are the two. Um, That's very good. What's that? And holding both of those offenses to seventeen is very good. It's good. Yeah, it's good. But it, but it's, you, st- I, I still don't know that like this defense, given how lethargic we feel like the offense is, I, I don't, I don't know that it gives me confidence going into this LSU game that it's going to be able to to limit LSU enough. It might be the big. It's probably the biggest test LSU's had. Maybe Auburn's pretty good, but it's it. But ultimately, you got to find some spark offensively. And with Lawrence Cager out, George Pickens out for a half, DeAndre uh, Swift banged up. Sounds like he's he's Kirby Smart was optimistic about him after the game. Uh, man, that's just that's some question marks for me offensively there. Over under combined margin of victory, SEC championship, ACC championship, Big Ten championship. Combined margin of victory, 45 points. Over. I know. <laughs> I mean, you may have. You, you get, I mean, Clemson might right. do that on its own. No, no, no. All right. So I was talking to West Durham about this uh, on Friday, and he made a good point because Virginia Tech just doesn't have anything offensively. Virginia Tech came down the stretch and got really hot. They were playing good defensively, and but if they showed up in Charlotte, the fact that they would not be able to move the ball on a Clemson defense that I believe is elite, uh, that that would be a one-sided aspect of this. They would not be able to overcome. Hendon Hooker 
or Quincy Patterson ain't getting first downs against Isaiah Simmons and this Clemson defense. But Bryce Perkins just being, you know, 22-year-old dual threat, I'm going to throw for 300 and run for 160 Bryce Perkins might be enough of a game changer to make it interesting. But no. all that said, you're right, Clemson alone. Clemson ain't going to win by 45, but I was I was looking at this and the developments coming out of Georgia as I forecast moving forward. My takeaways from clean old-fashioned hate is that I think the ACC championship, the SEC championship, and the Big Ten championship are going to be runaways with the three teams that we have considered to be the best teams in the country all winning by probably at least two touchdowns. I think of those three, LSU-Georgia will be the closest game. And I do think that Georgia can beat LSU, and I do think that could be a one touchdown or less game. But going back to the Virginia-Clemson thing, now this is with the caveat that my ratings have not updated to include today's action yet, but they did have Virginia's game from yesterday in it. My offensive line ratings, Virginia ranks 102nd in the country. Clemson's defensive front ranks second. Yeah. So no, Virginia's not gonna be able to do a whole lot against them on offense. Yeah, I think you're I think you're talking yourself into that one, Chip. I'm not, I mean, Bryce Perkins, the one man show, is is a pretty good deal when you're going against a mortal defense. But when you're going against gods at Clemson, then I, I'm not feeling it. How about the fact that Xavier Thomas missed three games with the concussion and is just now starting to like get his sea legs back? And Xavier Thomas is an NFL player. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is good. stupid. Uh yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, the, of, of those other of those other games that you threw the out news. there though, what? Pete, from Pete Thamel, Greg Schiano has agreed to be in principle to become the next coach at Rutgers. Wow, emergency pod. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the so the angry mob fired Greg Schiano from- at Tennessee. Tennessee, and then the, <laughs> the angry, angry mob got, got him hired at Rutgers. He is quite the lightning rod. <sighs> yep. So I about the, shout out to those angry mobs, huh? Way to way to be heard and angry. Greg Schiano will get Rutgers to sixth place in the Big Ten East within his first five years. All I know is Greg Schiano better take care of those New Jersey media guys because they were writing all the stories about how Greg Schiano was getting screwed in this deal. And I and it was great. I was following it along. It was awesome. It was I was interested in it. I'm not knocking them, but I'm sure that stuff was getting fed to them by Greg Schiano's camp. So uh, I hope there's a I hope there's a, a, a payoff on the back end for that. Well, those New Jersey media, that that conglomerate, remember, they, they had gone after an athletic director and multiple head coaches in the last, like, they've got some scalps right now. Right. <laughs> They're like a Jersey mafia. Weird. Why? That doesn't fit any stereotypes. <laughs> um <laughs> The, is this uh, a good time to shoot to, to sort of squeeze in uh, the Barry Odom news as well? Barry Odom fired by talk- Missouri on Saturday morning. While we're talking qu- about coaching changes. Here's a question for you two. Which job would you rather have, Missouri or Arkansas? Missouri. I think I'd rather have Missouri. I mean, Ar- I, That's Arkansas, three. Arkansas fans would be very offended by that. 
and I will I will fully acknowledge Arkansas is like a a a, a, a pr- like it has a prouder football tradition culture history. tradition yeah. history all that stuff. But Arkansas is in the West, Missouri's in the East. I think Missouri has a better like I think I think it's a more winnable job. Oh, it's easy. Uh, Arkansas last played for the SEC championship in 06. Missouri did it twice since joining the conference in 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it did it like pretty much right away after joining the conference. Yeah, you can do it. Mm-hmm. So Stephen Godfrey had uh, from Banner Society was, was, I don't know if he's written this yet, but he was reporting this on their Instagram account. I, I, I was listening to him, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. He was saying that basically Barry Odom was asked, was looking for a vote of confidence from the AD. The AD wasn't ready to give him one. And so because he didn't get one, he, Barry Odom started telling his people, we're going to get fired. That got back to the administration and the, the board, and they were pissed that he was spreading that rumor. And so because of that, they were like, you know what? Let's just cut cut bait. So like those <laughs> That's poorly convenient. played. By, yeah. So poorly played by Barry Odom, it sounds like. But I, I don't know if I feel like this was a job that like a, a firing that needed to happen though. I not that it not that it was this wasn't any some rocket ship that was mid flight, but I didn't I don't know that I necessarily was of the opinion that Barry Odom was couldn't get it done at Missouri. I, I mean, I don't know if it's 100% fair because when you think that, like, with what they had with the NCAA stuff coming into the season, the fact that he still had that team playing yeah, all year long, I think speaks well to him. But at the same time, I do think that for his sake, it could be great timing because with, you know, we talked about Virginia Tech with Bud Foster retiring. Barry had been Justin Fuente's defensive coordinator at Memphis, so I feel like, at the very least, you'd rather be a head coach, obviously, but at least I think he's probably going to get a soft landing and a pretty good gig at Virginia Tech. I'm not uh, comfortable. Like, yes, you're right, and I think that's going to happen, Tom. Like, that's where I would place my bet on the way that this ends up breaking and everyone's like, Oh, isn't this convenient? Everything worked out for the better. But if I'm in the position of Missouri or if I'm a Missouri fan, I'm, I'm back to Barton, your initial comment that I don't know if this needed to happen. I don't know if the next hire that Missouri's going to make is going to inspire great confidence that I didn't have with Barry Odom, because at least with Barry Odom, I did feel like the defense was going to be pretty good and Drew Locke had some kind of awesome years. And I understand that you didn't have, you never had a year that was better than 500 in SEC play, but you still had a bunch of bowl seasons. And you've got the NCAA sanctions holding over, sort of lording over this season. I mean, that this just feels like there's probably some personality fits that don't quite work on a level that I'm just not going to understand not being in Columbia. And that that's like there, there's someone at Missouri who wants, is it more charisma? Cause I will say Barry Odom ain't out here with charisma. We listen to PJ, <laughs> like we listened to PJ Fleck earlier and we've seen a bunch of this, uh, you know, all the energy bus 
disciples. Like we've there's there uh, is a, a brand right now that's a little bit hot, and Barry Odom ain't it. You know, just from you know offensive, even even the schematic and like what side of the ball you specialize on. Like that's for sure. I understand that maybe if you're going out trying to raise money. Maybe Barry Odom ain't doing it, and that's one of the reasons why they made this. But I, Barton, I do come back to that. Like, I just, I didn't think Missouri was in a horrible spot right now. But uh, the, if if it played out the way that Stevens reporting it, and Stevens a very good reporter, so I've, I, I have no reason to go out of my way to doubt it. You could look at it as maybe a poor play by Barry Odom, but that might have also been him reading the tea leaves on a relationship level within the community. Right, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe the bottom line is just Missouri sees it. Like we're all sitting here being like, "Oh yeah, Missouri, all cute little Missouri. They're having a decent old time over there. Win a few games, going a few bowls. Ah, what's what? Why 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 rock the boat, AD? But may, maybe Missouri just feels like they're underachieving. Feels like they have a a higher ceiling than seven and six. Um, which I mean, they certainly do. I I just um. Derek Mason, uh, coach killer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say this, and I mean, maybe this speaks to the decision to make the move in a weird way because we, we know a lot of Mizzou alums and, you know, working in this industry, there's a lot of Missouri journalism alums out there. And then just being where I live, I know a lot of Mizzou alums because there's a lot of them in the Chicago area. And, I never really got the sense from any of them that there there was never like a very vocal fire Barry Odom faction. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I did, you never really heard anybody complaining. But at the same time, since Odom got fired on Saturday morning, haven't really seen anybody jump to his defense either. So I feel like there's a lot of apathy around the program right now, and maybe that's part of the reason that they you know decided to quote unquote pull the trigger on it because it's just didn't feel like there were any strong feelings either way. And sometimes, you know, that's, that's a bad, that could be the worst sign, not caring. Mm. Yeah, I do. I do. I think that's, there does appear to be some apathy around that program. That's probably fair. So where do we think, uh, you know, I guess we bailed on the action at this point. Do we think we're <laughs> going to be doing an emergency podcast for Will Muschamp and, or Mark D'Antonio? I got Sunday. blown out, and Barton told him the other day, "Just don't get blown <laughs> out by Clemson." <laughs> hey, but I mean, we can talk about that. But before we do, can we just address Dabo Sweeney just full on going unlikable at this point? Mm. Like, come on, man! No one's trying to keep you out of the playoffs. No, has Clemson? Has Clemson even been behind? Like Clemson was behind Georgia, what once in the college football playoff ranking so far this year? Is that right? In the first one, maybe they were. I don't know. I don't even remember. I mean, who maybe, like yeah. no one cares, Dabo. Like I, I like Clemson, it. I don't care. Clemson is everyone at this. Like Clemson wasn't playing good early in the season. Everyone acknowledges that. Clemson is playing really well now, and no one thinks that they don't deserve to be in the playoffs. No one thinks that Clemson isn't one of the best three teams in the country. And Dabo is still just driving this Roy bus thing into the ground. Just let it go, man. And just let's play ball. Let's get, let's, you know, like it doesn't always have to be this everyone else is against Clemson narrative. Sorry. I think it does. 
I we've talked about it on the podcast over this season. I felt like with the way things had set up for Clemson and the way the rest of the ACC looked and not having Notre Dame on the schedule, not really having any challenger, Clemson's biggest opponent all year long was going to be boredom. And Dabo has found the way to, he knows, listen, my team's so much better than everybody else, I can't let them get caught sleeping. So he has to play the, they're all against us, nobody likes us, nobody's talking about us, they're all out to get us. So I agree where it's he's not, he's not, He's not correct, but I think it's what he has to do. I mean, I think I saw him chewing out a ball boy today. He stays chewing out everybody but the four and five stars. Like if you are a punter, if you are a field goal kicker, if you are a staffer, if you are a ball boy, you are going to get chewed out by Dabo. So Trevor Lawrence doesn't have to hear any of it. And look, Tom, that's all fair, and I agree. And and it's exhausting, but I understand it's calculating, and I understand there's a reason and a method for it. And so to that end, hey, you know what? Do what you got to do, Dabo. Uh, you know, but I'm just – at this point, it's just it has gotten a little bit exhausting listening to it. And Dabo is – you know, hey, you, you're driving the Death Star now, brother. You, you, are, you are Darth Vader at this point, Dabo. And so uh, you can think that you can you can say that all you want, but you're you're big bad Clemson at this point. And so if anything, you are the, you are the villain. I don't you're, th- you're- listen. You're right, Barton. But I don't think that the messaging like they've got big old TVs all over that facility. And Dabo even said because uh, they were asking him at one point during this month. They said, you know, are you going to even be watching the rankings? Uh, the ranking show that comes out on Tuesday night. And Dabo didn't give the like, oh, we don't pay any attention to that. He said, he was like, oh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you know, all the TVs in the facility are on ESPN. So we're going to, yeah, we'll watch it, but whatever, you know, this, that, or the other. And so that means that every single time that, you know, whether it's Paul Feinbaum or whether it's just whoever's going to be playing the anti-Clemson card in the college football debate on whatever the debate show is, Yeah, they hear it, and I think that that's what just continues to fuel the fire. I don't think that Dabo is going totally straw man because there are people with national platforms that are pushing the narratives that he's beating back against. Fair. He just take that. He's just he's magnifying it and just making it even bigger. Well, and and look, and I'll say this too, like the, I mean. The fine bombs that are, are <laughs> that are driving the the contrasting Dabo narrative are just as exhausting. Yes, like, right. I mean, there's those are so uh, contrived that it's it's maddening. Maybe even more so. So, uh, look, I guess if I'm sitting there listening to, to some of those, then maybe I would be inspired to speak up if I was Dabo too. And I, th- I think that that's kind of... Because remember, I mean, and that's also Dabo's style. Like, one one fan might have told one player that 50-35 to 35 to South Carolina, quote, felt like a loss after last year, and he turned it into a giant tirade. Right. They, they said felt <laughs> like a loss. I don't care about, you know, just one point. One more point than the opponent. That's football. My mom lived with me. Don't y'all know that? <laughs> um. Okay. So uh, what what else is on the notepad from the uh, the week fourteen? Uh, 
Utah killed Colorado. Defense looked great. Hope you enjoy your defensive coordinator, Morgan Scali, while you still have him, because I have a feeling he's going to be head coach next year. I guess, I mean, he played at Utah, right? Yeah. So I mean, he's he may he may <clears throat> wait for the right time. Maybe he's maybe he's got a wink and a nod from Kyle Whittingham. Hey, stick around. You'll be the guy when when I leave. Possible. Uh, but I don't know. Like I always wonder. Like, does a guy like that, who's at his alma mater, who does he is he interested going coaching at Colorado State or something, or is he just interested in waiting until his name is big enough to get a true Power Five job? Or take over at Utah, so I don't know. But yeah, he is a good D coordinator. Anything else? Uh, Oklahoma was Oklahoma-ish. I mean, oh, shout out to Baylor for just dumping sixty-one to six. I don't know what Les Miles and the Jayhawks did to the Baylor Bears, but goodness, I I looked at that as uh trying to like a, a good sign that that t- like I, I don't think that that would be a situation where they fired all of their bullets before you know the biggest game of the year i would say that as a compliment i mean shocker compliment to matt rule and his staff for having a very good baylor team just like gearing up in uh in kill mode as it gets ready for the rematch i mean that that we've got a game in the big 12 championship where baylor led 28 to 3 when they played less than a month ago like this is massive for baylor to be in a good headspace to go try and take down oklahoma make a run at the college football playoff and they showed everything that would suggest that they're ready to do it or, or maybe they were just like, man, they bumped us up five spots for beating a mediocre Texas team. What do they do if we put 60 on Kansas? Maybe it was style points driven. We'll see. Hey, uh, Moneyline Sprinkle. Uh, Unity. Oh. That, well, didn't, that didn't go well. Does that count on our lock Unity record? No. It's no, a different I mean, competition. It counts on our, our, our Sprinkle Unity record. Okay, cool. Because I wasn't but, sure what to do that in updating the doc today. No, no, no. But look, I will say, like, if someone had told me it was going to be, you know, hey, I blame you, Tom, could have had a better mm. weather report because Kentucky in those weather games with with Lynn Bowden, pretty tough to deal with. Um, My bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'll wear this. So this one, I'm going to go PJ Fleck. This one's 100% on me, but this isn't who we're going to be. That's over. <laughs> That's who we were. We're going to keep getting better. We're going to keep working harder. We're going to keep sprinkling on the right teams, and we're going to keep winning. All right. If we uh, – there, there is a chance well, – wait, you got more? Are you rapping? Are you rapping? I think so. Egg Bowl? Egg Bowl. We talked you about it. just touch Egg Bowl. First of all, we hinted on this podcast that the dentist was heavily invested in the Egg Bowl. What a middle. We discussed on this podcast that there was a potential for a middle that would be very profitable for the dentist. So do we have a discount code for listeners of the Cover 3 podcast to be able to go get some dental cleanings? Want to get a cleaning? I don't know. I don't know if I haven't gotten approved to throw the the figures out for the dentist on that. So I'm going to hold off. We don't want, we don't want to hear the figures. We already know the the, energy. I've given 
I've given y'all the figures. Y'all, y'all know the figures. Yes. So you can at least confirm, like, it is substantial. Yes. It is more than I bet. <laughs> um, and so this, he, you know, substantial, substantial win there. Um, so proud of the dentist. I, I got to say, the there's a lot of there's a lot of shaming of Elijah Moore out there on the Twitter verse and like you know, columns being written about the repulsive, selfish behavior. What am I going to tell my children? <laughs> lost the game. I just, I, I don't know whether this is like a, a generational thing with me or whether this is sort of me being soft, but I just can't be mad at something that was that precisely executed the dog peeing was was a was beautifully done. Like <laughs> it was like it, it was very like uh, I feel like disciplined. Uh, I mean, it looked like a dog peeing, and I I just I kind of wanted to applaud it in the moment. Yeah, we just scored. We're gonna go up up one. And we're gonna tie the game, but I, I, that was. I can't be mad at Elijah Moore. I'm not so, going to do it. So the ref I, reached for his flag, and Barton reached for the card with the ten on it to hold it up like it's the dunk contest. <laughs> so yeah. I I am not going to clutch my pearls over it, but that was just dumb. You know, dumb. you know, you're going to get the penalty for it. You know, your team's probably going to go for two and try to win the game. And it was funny, and it was hilarious, and I'm not offended by it, but it was stupid. So I was rooting for the middle for the dentist, and and when they scored, I was like, "All right, let's let's I hope they go for two and miss it." And then he then he dog peed, and I was like, "Oh man, there goes the two point conversion." But but I was like, "All right, we'll we got overtime. Let's see if we can make it make it work in overtime." And I, I just sort of like wouldn't stopped kind of paying attention, <laughs> and 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 as they lined up, I was like, oh wait a minute, wait a minute, and then it went went wide right, and it was like, oh man, what an ending, what an ending, and so that uh, was very dramatic. It it overshadowed Joe Moorhead. You're gonna have to drag my Yankee ass out of here. <laughs> Hell yeah, Joe Moorhead. <laughs> hey, but I will say though that was a. Very well played game, I thought, between two teams that were potentially not going to the bolt to a bowl. Oh hell yeah. I love like, that. That's why I love that game. That did not look like there's some there's some rivalry games that have been close this weekend that have been sloppy and gross. That was a that was a rivalry game that looked like two good teams that were better than their record suggested. NC State had won nine out of twelve till Mac Brown put it on that ass tonight. <laughs> Wouldn't that score like sixteen to ten or something? In yeah. late in the second, and yeah. then I look up the finals like forty-one to ten. What in the world happened? Um, they were doing a pretty decent job of limiting things early, and then after halftime, Phil Longo had all the adjustments. Sam Howell finishes with four hundred yards and three touchdowns. Yeah. Just twenty-eight point third quarter, and then that's a wrap. Bing bang boom. My only. My only win total loss of the year. The Tar Heels. North Carolina. Yeah, they, they, they got me. Uh, Duke beat Miami. 
I really hope we're not doing a Manny Diaz emergency pod. <laughs> that would be uncomfortable. Uh, that would be uncomfortable. I don't have any especially strong after takes. Get, especially after we gave him rave reviews from his press conference. <laughs> For the, the darkest day in Miami football history. No, <laughs> oh, I'm talking about his intro press conference. Oh, yes. Uh, Boston College beat Pitt. Syracuse Hello, beat Wake Joel. Forest on a strip mm. in overtime. Unbelievable. Northwestern North beat Illinois. Northwestern beat Illinois. The Cal is Cal is up on UCLA, it looks like. Mm. <sighs> what a weekend. What a weekend. I'm tired. I yeah, I I, I am very tired. <laughs> it's like it's it's a long week, man. With with the game on Thursday, you know, you got the holiday on Thursday, and then Friday it's a full day of games, and then it's another full. It's 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 you know, these are the dog days, folks. Go get in the ice tub <laughs> from these takes. Let me let me cool <laughs> off these fingers from firing off these takes. Dip them in a nice little ice bath. Get them ready for Sunday. Um, if if things go bananas, we might be back with you on Sunday. Otherwise, it'll be a Mailbag Monday. And regardless, if you want to get in your questions for a Mailbag Monday, you can do so by going to the Cover 3 podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star review. And within that review, leave your question for the Mailbag. It gets added to the big Mailbag doc, and uh, we will get to it on a Mailbag Monday. And we have really appreciated the questions. We get a lot of good ones that we're going to come back to. Some of them we have sort of answered with even within the context of this show, but that does not mean it's been deleted, so we will be sure to uh, address it. Make sure that you do that. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow him at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. As one door closes, another opens. The 2020 fantasy baseball season is over, but 2021 prep is just beginning. Join Scott White and me, Frank Stample, on Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, as we take an early look at position previews, review mock drafts, and react in real time to the MLB hot stove. Not only that, we'll be welcoming in some of the best guests in the industry to try and figure out what was real and what wasn't from the abbreviated 60-game season. Listen Tuesdays and Thursdays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found.